to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. This morning, Revelation chapter 3. And man, am I excited to share this message. And it shouldn't, it's a, it's a crazy thing, as excited as I am, because it's, it's about the dead church. So, but there's something incredible that we can, we can learn from this church this morning, and, and I believe God has a great word for us. So Revelation chapter 3, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. Revelation chapter 3, and we'll find Jesus this morning. He's writing a sober letter to the church in Sardis where he writes, Dear Church, awaken. Dear Church, awaken. Stand with me if you would, please, and we're going to read our text this morning. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, where Jesus says, And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who, was, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you received and heard, Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, here we are. Bible's open in our lap, your spirit amongst us. Jesus at the center. And we ask you to speak to us this morning. Lord, we ask you to if our hearts have fallen asleep, if we are in a slumber in some way, that you would awaken us this morning. For some, salvation. Lord, for others, just a revival in our heart. We've grown cold. Lord, we ask you this morning that you would just do your work in our lives today. We look forward, Lord, to what it is that you want to say to us. So our hearts are open, Lord. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You could be seated. <clears throat> Have you ever noticed that reputation doesn't always equal reality? Reputation doesn't always equal reality. Let me illustrate. Maybe it's meeting someone that's been touted as being super awesome. And upon meeting them, you find out that reality is they're not super awesome at all. In fact, they're the direct opposite of super awesome. Maybe it's uh, some restaurant that people in your town have been touting or they, they, they themselves have, have proclaimed that they are the best food in town. And you go and you, you, you order your food and you're not impressed. It's not what you thought it would be. Reputation doesn't equal reality. Maybe it's a destination that you were looking forward to go to been touted as the mecca of fun, and when you arrive, you figured out that it was everything else but fun. <laughs> it's called Disney World. No, I'm just kidding. Not really, but <laughs> if you have little kids, you know what I mean. 
I think they should make a reality TV show out of that. But anyway, I've been there with my kids, I know. Reputation doesn't always equal reality. That is certainly the case for the church found in Sardis. They had a reputation of being this vibrant, life-giving church, and yet from heaven's perspective, they were cold and they were dead. They had allowed the character of the city of Sardis to infiltrate and as a result had lost their light, and no one even knew it. The city of Sardis was one of the greatest cities in the region of Asia Minor. It's a lucrative city located just five, uh, located on a junction of five uh, main trade routes just south, 30 miles south of Thyatira. It was the main, the main trade there in Sardis was gold and silver as well as fine garments. It's, it's been said that Sardis was a city of first, was the first to mint the coin. It was also the first to dye wool. This made it a city of reputation. Not only that, but Sardis was built upon a, an Acropolis, some 1,500 feet above, above the valley below, making it an impenetrable fortress. It, it gave the people a false sense of security and safety. So much so that they would not even uh, set a guard at the city gate at nighttime because of the cliff-like walls that the city was built upon. Uh, the, the people there had had grown so, so complacent and so comfortable. The story go, but that, that whole security thing was debunked, not once, but twice. The story goes, it was 546 B.C., the, 548 B.C., that the uh, Persians were outside the city waiting. They had surrounded the city. They were waiting, and, and it, it was said that a soldier was, was walking upon the wall there on the city of Sardis, and his helmet fell down. One of the Persian soldiers that was waiting to see how they were going to go get in was just observing this man come out of the wall, walk down a path, grab his helmet, and go back up into the city. You see, there was only one way in, and it was through a secret passage. But guess what? That secret passage had just been revealed. So, at nightfall, the Persians found their way up that trail into that doorway into the city where they found everybody asleep. And so they were conquered. It rocked the world to know that this impenetrable fortress had been conquered by the Persians. But that did not affect the hearts of the people in Sardis. They remained complacent and comfortable, they re remained in this false sense of security. And so, 200 years later, they were conquered again by Antichius the Great. He came about it a different way, though. He hired some mountain climber to help him figure out a way up the sheer cliff walls. And again, they entered in at night and they found the entire city asleep. They conquered them once again. Because of the, the nature of these, these, these victories that were given to those who conquered Sardis, there was a phrase developed in the city, and it was this. Sardis was taken as a thief in the night. Isn't that interesting? Didn't we just read something about Jesus saying something like that in this passage? 
in A.D. 17, Sardis was destroyed by an earthquake and then rebuilt again by Emperor Tiberius. But listen, the city would never, ever uh, become what it once was. Never again would it be this great city. And yet it was said that oftentimes you would, that there wasn't a day that you couldn't walk through the city and hear somebody, you know, glorying over the past glory of the city. They were living in the past. They were living in a false reality of the city that was declining. And yet they were proclaiming it as this great, magnificent city. They had fallen asleep. They were not living in reality. The city was dying. And they were living off of the faded glory of the past. That was exactly the state of the church in Sardis. The church membership became overconfident and complacent, relying upon themselves to build the church. They were glorying in the past work of the Holy Spirit. That can happen in any church. Jesus addresses the church of Sardis for becoming complacent and self-reliant. Although they had a reputation of being alive, Jesus gives them a healthy dose of reality here. And he tells them, listen, you are not alive. You are, in fact, dead. The church had fallen asleep. And hence, Jesus writes to them, dear church, awaken. We begin with the typical introduction and description of Jesus here in verse 1 where he says, and to the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus is writing to the angel of the church, to the pastor of the church, to the messenger of the church. And he has a message for him. And that message is contained in the description of himself where he says, hey, listen, I am the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. Again, this description that Jesus, it's typical of every other letter that he writes in these churches, these seven letters, describes what the problem is in the church. Jesus tells this church that they have a lack of dependency upon the Holy Spirit. That phrase, seven spirits of God. It's a reference to the complete and perfect work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Seven is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. There is only one spirit, but he manifests himself, according to Isaiah, in seven specific ways. And in fact, you can find that twice, that reference of seven spirits. It's seven manifestations of the spirit of God in different ways that manifest that complete and total work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person. And here's what Isaiah 11:2 says. The spirit of the Lord Number one, shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That is the sevenfold manifestation of the complete and perfect work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. The spirit is what built the church, folks. In fact, that's why Jesus told his disciples Don't you dare go into the world without being baptized in the Holy Spirit. You go and wait until the baptism of the Spirit comes upon you because you need power in order to be witnesses uh, unto the ends of the earth. You need the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It's been said by C.S. Lewis, I believe he said, or A.W. Tozer, one or the other, they said that 
95% of what happened in the early church could not happen had the Holy Spirit not fallen on them. But 95% of what happens in our churches today could continue to go on and nobody would know the difference. How sad is that? How relevant is this, is this passage for us today? Why do we need the Spirit? Why do we need something more than the, the, the crucified and risen Savior? Here's why. Here's why. Because He is the one that gives life. Yes, it was manifest through the cross, through the blood of Christ, but the Spirit is life-giving. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The Spirit of God is our life. He is the one that, that is the rebirth. When you are, when you are reborn into, uh, you know, as, as you are reborn by confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit coming inside of you and sealing you, he is the breath of life. It's interesting. When Jesus, after he rose again from the dead and he came into the upper room where his disciples were, you know what he did? He breathed on them. When he breathed on them, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. That was the sealing effect of the Holy Spirit. Then he said, now you go wait in Jerusalem until the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens, until there's an empowerment. We receive the sealing of the Spirit immediately upon confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then we wait upon the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that can happen subsequently more than once over and over and over again as the command is to be being filled with the Spirit of God. We need the power of the Holy Spirit because He is life. But number two, because He is power. Because He is the power. He is the life breath of the church. Same Spirit that God blew into Adam's life and bring, brought him to life after he formed him from dust is the same spirit that is in you and I. And it also is the same spirit that was in Jesus Christ that empowered him to do the things that he did. He was the second Adam. He was a human being. Yes, he was fully God, but he was fully man. He was limited to the same power that you and I have. And he had power. And it was because of the Holy Spirit. If you're lacking power today in your life, it is a result of a lack of dependency upon the Holy Spirit. That is the issue. It's a lack of effort, or it's, it's a result of effort. You're trying to do it on your own. Jesus is reminding this church in Sardis, if you stand a chance of awakening and becoming really what your reputation is, to be this life-giving, life, vibrant, you know, fresh church, then you are going to need a fresh move of the Holy Spirit in your midst. Notice, who has the Holy Spirit? According to this verse, it's Jesus who has the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the giver of the Spirit. That's why the, the, the Word tells us that when we, when we pray to the Father, that we can ask for the Holy Spirit and He'll give it. Jesus is the giver. He is the giver of the Spirit of God. And He also is the one who holds these stars in His hand. Who were the stars? Again, this is a reference, Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. The stars are a reference to the angel or the messenger or the pastor of the church. Jesus has him in his hand. He's holding them. And he's writing to them because it begins with the leadership of the church. It begins with the pastor of the church. He says, you want to see a move of God? You must depend on the Holy Spirit. And you begin to pray for an outpouring 
of the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm so excited this morning. Because although this letter is to you, this letter is to me. And God is already doing an amazing work in my life. And I, I hope he does the same with you this morning. Jesus goes on and he gives a diagnosis of the problem in Sardis. Verse, at the, in verse 1, the end of verse 1 there. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, these are most sobering words in the Bible, I believe. For you to think that you are alive and Jesus himself to pop into your life and tell you, well, actually, no, you're not alive. You're dead. You're dead. I think there are many, many people in our culture today that are the church of Sardis. They are dead, but they think they're alive. Well, I said a prayer. I walked an aisle. I did this or I did that. It's not about what you did. It's about who you trusted in. Did you truly surrender fully to Jesus? Is he really your Lord? How do I know? Well, are you walking in his footsteps? That's the reality. You won't do it perfectly. But listen, there ought to be a direction that leads you closer to him, not away from him. That's the life of a believer. Now, doesn't mean you don't fall away at times. But there should be a life characterized in pursuing Jesus, pursuing him with everything that you have. He tells this church here, I know your works. And do you notice that he does not commend them for, his work, for their works in this church? This is, this is the only time in these letters that Jesus does not commend somebody for the works that he sees. Why is he not commending these people for their works? Because, as we will learn here in verse 2, their works are incomplete. What do you mean? Their works were in the flesh and not birthed from the Spirit. Those are the kind of works that God will not acknowledge, folks. He does not acknowledge works of the flesh. He does not acknowledge things, you know, just well-intended Christians that are doing their own thing that say, now here's what I've made. Now bless it, Lord. Go ahead. Let's see what you want to do. You know, he, he, he says, I know your works. And then he just moves on. No, condom, no, no commendation, but instead, condemnation. Condemnation. Jesus is telling these church members that they're laboring in vain. Yes, they're laboring, but they are laboring in vain. They have, as Paul said, begun in the Spirit, but now they are trying to be made perfect in the flesh. This is something that every believer can be prone to do. Having received grace through faith, nothing you've done whatsoever, you just receive it. God transforms your life. The Spirit of God begins to work in your life. And then you try to take the mantle from God and say, let me take this over and let me make something out of it. Listen, there's not a single time in the history of the church where Jesus handed over the church to you and said, go make something of it. He's never once ever handed that mantle over because we'll mess it up. We'll mess it up. Jesus is telling his church that they are operating in the same spirit Sarah was when they were given that promise. And Abraham, when they were given that promise of a child. God spoke and said, I will 
give you a child. Jesus said, I will build the church. Abraham and Sarah, they wait for 25 years. God hasn't moved yet. He obviously means for us to do it. I mean, we can visually look around and see that, you know, we need to build the church because of what we're seeing, and we're not walking by faith, but we're walking by sight. So we get tempted, as Abraham was, to take the matter into our own hands. And we start to think like, well, we'll do it, Lord. Let's see what we can do. And as you know, Abraham and Sarah take Hagar. They have this crazy situation go on. They have a, and, and Hagar gets pregnant. She has a baby. and His name is Ishmael. And God rejects Ishmael as the promised child because he was not of the spirit but of the flesh. And here's what's interesting. God said, because he is from you, Abraham, I, I am going, because I gave you a promise, I am going to bless him because of, he's of your seed. But do you know what that blessing has, has produced in this world? Havoc. Havoc. Do you know that Ishmael is the father of the Islamic nations? Now, I'm not saying that the Islamic nations would have never developed outside of that. I'm just saying that Abraham helped them to develop through this son that he took, through this work of the flesh. God doesn't need our help. He promised to build the church. He will build the church. We don't need to get in, in the middle of it. We need to be filled with the Spirit of God and allow the Spirit of God to do His work in our midst. That's what we need. Jesus said it's a simple matter of abiding. John chapter 15, verse 5, where he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for, listen, apart from me you can do nothing. These well-intentioned work works of the flesh materialize into nothingness in terms of eternity. They don't go anywhere because they're not from the Lord. And oftentimes, I will say that those works of the flesh will wreak havoc in your life, just like Abraham, just like Ishmael in Abraham's life. Do you not know that to be true? God, I'll take this into control, and the next thing you know, you're, now you've got some lifelong issue that you have to deal with because you took matters into your own hands. Jesus said, if you abide in me, the Holy Spirit will work through you, and you know what? I'll do amazing things through you. He said, in fact, nothing will be impossible because your dependency is not on yourself, but it's on the Lord. But if you try and do it yourself, you will do nothing. Nothing that matters. Nothing that matters. Jesus is telling this church that they have a reputation <clears throat> of being a Holy Spirit-filled church. But they are not. They are not. Literally, it is, you had been a Spirit-filled church. You had been. You no longer are. It's, the, the reality is it's past tense. I wonder, is it past tense in your life this morning? Are you spirit-filled today? Not, not that you'd lose the Holy Spirit if you sin or anything, but 
Are you operating in the power of the Holy Spirit today, or, or are you operating in the power of the flesh? There's much scripture that's given to the church about the importance of walking in the Spirit versus walking in the flesh. Again, you walk in the Spirit, Paul says, you wreak havoc in your life. You walk in the Spirit, man, you, you produce fruit, and you're healthy. This church, they had labored in vain. They were serving themselves. They were building their church, not his church. They were building their church their way. And listen, the church has fallen into this trap of trying to build their church. I get emails and all kinds of different things every day that say, hey, you want to grow your church better? 30% growth in just 30 days. You know, get this program and we can do it and all this kind of stuff. And I think, huh, is that what, that must have been what Peter did after the Holy Spirit fell on them is they must have said, hey, we packaged this great deal. Let's market it out to the people. Let's build this church. You know, no, it's not what happened. They depended on the Holy Spirit. And in fact, I don't think they were planning. I don't think they were strategizing. I don't think they were having meetings to figure out how they were going to deal with the growth. I think what they were doing is on their knees, dependent on the Holy Spirit, saying, move. Move in me. Move in me. Move in me. And he did. God wants to do that in our lives. Not simply so that we can see more people come to church or anything like that, but because you have a call on your life. And the only way that you're ever going to be able to step into that call is if you're filled by the Spirit of God. You try and step into that call outside of the Spirit of God, and it's, it will be a disaster. You need the Spirit to do what He's calling you to do. You see, it, it's the same situation, you know, when... when, when, when Zerubbabel came into Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. And the Lord spoke, you know, he was so discouraged. He was looking at this pile of rubble there. And he's like, Lord, how are we supposed to rebuild this? And you know what the Lord said to him through Zechariah? Listen, my son, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's how he does it, folks. He changes not. He operates the exact same as he did in the Old Testament and New Testament. It's through the Spirit of God. And he is working in his church today to build his church. And he is drawing people to himself. It's all the work of God. The Holy Spirit, you know, is the one that draws a person to the Father. Gives him the desire to know him. Gives them the understanding of, of what Jesus has done for them. You ever met a new believer that just comes to Christ out of nowhere and you're thinking like, how did they do that? They don't even understand how, how deep their sin is or anything. I mean, they, they've been, they, like I've been sharing with them for like six minutes and they're ready to accept Christ. What you don't understand is that the Holy Spirit has been working on that person for 10 days, 10 weeks, 10 years. And it was that moment when he make it, made it make sense. I'm talking to a kid right now that in my, I, I'm counseling that is never been to church, doesn't know anything about the Bible. And do you know, it's so interesting, like, like as we're talking and he's telling me like, and, he, and he's feeling drawn to the Lord. That's the Holy Spirit. He starts to speak to me about the things that the Lord is, he's like, I don't know, I just keep getting all these weird thoughts about this and that and whatever. They're all scripture. 
literally the theology of this kid is being built by the Holy Spirit. And I'm just thinking, that's in the Bible, that's in the Bible, that's in the Bible. He doesn't know the Bible. How is that happening? The Holy Spirit. That's how it happens. Listen, folks, we don't have to prepare a person to prepare a person to come to Christ. The Holy Spirit already has preempted and prepared that conversation. All you need to do is be filled with him and say what he tells you to say. That's it. That's it. He will build his church. If you want to see revival, if you want to see a move of God, it starts, listen, with you. It starts with you. You have to, you have to commit to say, Lord, I'm going to open myself up and I am going to be obedient to what it is that you want to do. And I'm going to step into whatever it is that you call me to step into. But I need power. I need your spirit. And watch and see what he does when you, when you pray that prayer to, to him. Watch and see what he does. Historically, this is a reference. This, this church of Sardis is historically the reference to the Reformation period. What do I mean? That was a great move of God. The great awakening, all this stuff happened. It was, you know, God began to move in the life of John Wycliffe and John Huss, Hugh Latimer, and then into the people like uh, Tyndale, Luther, Wesley. And there was a great reformation that started where the church was exiting out of this dead church called Catholicism that that had married itself to the world and become utterly corrupt. And there were people in that movement that were saying, hold on a second, this isn't biblical. This isn't what we ought to be doing. And so they, they, God began to move in the heart of a person. And that became a movement called the Reformation. But the problem is with the Reformation, as it was with Sardis, is that they didn't come completely out. Jesus said their works are incomplete and possibly a reference to the Reformation period because when the churches started, uh, they, they didn't come all the way out of Catholicism. They came out to a portion. And that's why you have things like Episcopalian and, and these kinds of religions that are semi-Catholic. Uh, Lutherism, same idea. And what's happened now is that the church was living off the reputation of the movement that God began in a man's heart. And now you can see the effects of how that works. Just as Jesus said, you're dead, so are their movements. And you know why they're dead? Dude, I tell you, go, go, go to Europe where all of this began and walk into the churches in Europe and see how many people there are. There's cathedrals and huge churches that can fill hundreds of people and there's 20 people in there. Why? Because the church is dead. Because people began to, began to look to a man and they started to depend on a reputation that developed as a result of a move that God was doing in a man and they didn't allow the Holy Spirit to continue that work, and it killed it. There is powerless religious organizations all over the world today because of that. Because it's not the Holy Spirit moving in the midst. And God is calling those churches that are dead to awaken. He's not done yet. He will. He, there's possibility. He can do something, but... They must obey him. They must obey him. And I want to just say this. I, I think it's important for us, those of you who understand the heritage of Calvary Chapel, 
to be careful that we also don't fall into the same category. It, it's happening. Listen, it's happening. Pastor Chuck has died. And there, are, there is some fracturing that has happened as a result of that. And if we're not careful and we're depending upon the name, the reputation, and not the Spirit of God, we will become a dead church. We will become a dead church. This movement will become a dead movement just like every other movement that's ever happened. Because it was not a result of marketing or programming or anything else. It was a move of the Spirit of God in a period of time where there was an awakening happening. A revival was going on. Churches were filled with, with people. And God used the man, Chuck Smith, to begin a movement, which Vance Habner says that it starts with a man, it becomes a movement, it becomes a machine, and then it can become a monument, which is what can happen if a church depends on the guy. And I think Pastor Chuck did a good job of not pointing us to him, but pointing us to Jesus. But that doesn't mean that the spirit of Sardis can't still work in, in an organization. We have to be careful that we're not following a man or a movement, but we're following Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives this church five commands. If they want to do something about the situation, and this is, a, uh, this is an open letter to any church that is in this state. And by the way, not just church. Let's not talk about entity. Let's talk personally. It's, about, it's an open letter to you as a person because you are the church. It's not just to an entity. He says five things that they need to do. Number one, wake up. Number two, and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in, in the sight of my God. Number three, remember then what you have received and heard. Number four, keep it. Number five, repent. And here's, here's the consequence. Here's the warning. If you don't, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. First, Jesus commands his church to wake up. He says to them, wake up. There have been pastors in the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries that have been pounding the pulpit to tell the church to wake up because Jesus is on the brink. He's coming soon. We're in the last hour, folks, and the church needs to wake up. We, we cannot hide behind this whole this premise that, well, I mean, these are just the signs of the times. You know, we, we, these are just the signs of the times, and so we'll just, be, we'll just stay asleep, and we'll, we'll be in our comfortable zone, even though Jesus is coming soon, and, and we're not going to do anything about it, and we're just going to stay where we are because we want to be comfortable. You're asleep. And Jesus says, wake up. He, he, he's commanding the church to wake up. The city of Sardis, listen, was conquered twice because people were asleep. And Jesus is telling, the exact same thing is going to happen to you if you don't wake up right now. What does it mean to wake up? It means to be in a continual state of readiness and alertness to be watchful. It's the same command Jesus gave to Peter and James and John in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? When he was about ready to go to the cross and he said, come, pray with me. They went in and they, they sat down with Jesus. They began to pray. Jesus said, 
this to his disciples. Remain here? And he said, and watch. That literally in the Greek means stay awake. Stay awake with me. His church must be awake if we stand a chance at revival. You have to be awake. You have to be alert. You have to be ready. You have to be watchful. You have to be seeking that, pursuing that. It's an action word. Number two, Jesus says you must strengthen what remains. This is, this is hopeful because what Jesus is saying is, hey, there is, a, there is a remnant in this church that has a pulse. It's not very strong. Not a very strong pulse, but they have somewhat of a pulse. You know, there's a few here that need to be strengthened. To be strong. In what? In their works, right? No. In the Holy Spirit. They need to be strengthened in the Holy Spirit. Because it's His work. Revival is His work. What we need to do is strengthen what remains. Those that are the remnant of this particular church need to be strengthened in this way. Thirdly, Jesus says they need to remember what they received and heard. Isn't that a work of the Holy Spirit? It actually is a work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 14, verse 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, listen, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus is asking for surrender here. He's saying, listen, just begin to get your eyes on me and pursue me. And I'll do the rest of it. Fourthly, you need to keep it. Keep what? Keep what you received and heard. Not only remember it, but you've got to put it into action. You need to keep it. Jesus said it like this again in John chapter 8, verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The remedy for death is keeping his word. Not in a religious, sterile way, but in a Holy Spirit-filled kind of way where Jesus, you know, even said, here's, here's my commandments to you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself. That's it. If you do that, you will fulfill everything else. You don't even have to worry about the ten. Just do the two. Just do the two. If you, and it's all about love. It's not about your works. It's about allowing the, and, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to work through your life in such a way that you love God with everything that you have and you love others because of that. It's a work of the Spirit. Jesus lastly says to this church, here's your part, repent. Here's your part, repent. As the Holy Spirit begins to convict your heart about the things that are going on in your life, you need to repent. You need to have that continual state of confessing your sin and turning away from it. Twofold uh, stage of repentance. Two things involved. Confession and turning away. To change your mind. To go the direct opposite direction. To say, Lord, here's my conviction. I'm doing this and I need help here. I confess it to you and I'm asking you for the strength to turn away. And what is he going to do? Fill you with his spirit is what he's going to do. And he's going to give you the strength to do it. Listen, you can't have con continual communion with God if you are unrepentant. 
you, you can't, ex you know, it, it is the idea, yes, it is the idea of an unbeliever coming just as you are. But as a believer, you are called to change continually. And that happens through repentance. That, that is the sanctification process. It's not about salvation at that point. The repentance that Jesus is speaking of is the repentance within the church, within true believers. And he's saying, turn away from your sin and turn back to me. Yes, it's how you're saved. You, re you repent. Your repentance is the, is the method. It's not the means. The means is Jesus Christ and his blood and him crucified. But the method is repentance. Turn, confession, and turning away from your sin. And as you're sanctified in him, it's the same thing, repentance. You guys got that, right? You're like, yeah, come on, can we move on? Yeah. We're not going to move on until we all do. No, I'm just kidding. But here's the thing. Jesus says if you will do these things, then there's a reward for it. But if you will not, I'm going to come against you like a thief in the night, just like Sardis was conquered twice. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you again. And if you'll notice, this, the things that he says to the, all the churches, the same condition, if you don't, and he continually references his coming. I will come. He's not going to send somebody else. He will come and do that work, whatever the work is. And in this case, he says, I'm going to come like a thief against the night against you. But here's the reward. If you do, if you follow these, the formula for revival, the formula for being awakened is fivefold right there. And here's what will happen if you do that. Verse 4. Yet, you have a, still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in wine, and they, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in garments, and I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. Listen, although the majority of the church had been lulled to sleep, like the culture that it lived in, there were some who had not become complacent and comfortable. And it is to these that Jesus speaks these rewards. He says, firstly, that he would walk with them in white. It's not only will Jesus clothe them in white, but Jesus will walk with them in light. If you follow that terminology in the Bible, that brings you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 where God walked in the garden with Adam. He will walk with you. And yes, he will clothe you. It's interesting that he brings up garments here because uh, Sardis was a city of garments. They, they, they were the first place to dye wool. They had all kinds of garments going on. And Jesus references two types of garments here. Number one, he references a soiled garment, and then he references a white garment. The soiled garment is, yes, a reference to the sin-stained person, but it's also a reference, according to Isaiah, of the, of the person who is dependent upon their own works for righteousness rather than Jesus Christ. Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like polluted, like a polluted garment. Like a polluted garment. You can look up the terminology later and see what that means. It's not pretty. But what does Jesus say to the one who follows his commands? He says, I will... I will walk with you and clothe you in white. It's a reference to not only will he wash you. That, that the, the white is, is a color of purity. It's a color of holiness. It's a color of righteousness. He says, not only will I walk with you, but I will cleanse you. I will make you white as snow. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are 
red like crimson. They shall be like wool. It's the blood of Christ that washes us white as snow. And our faith in him is how we are made righteous and whole. Isaiah goes on to say in Isaiah 61, 11, that we will, as a result of his washing, we will be clothed with a robe of righteousness. That is that white garment that Jesus speaks about here. He will give them, he will walk with them and clothe them in white. Not, secondly, he says that I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Now, many people take this passage right here and they go, well, clearly those who, um, th- th- it's possible for your life, for your name to be blotted out. That's not what it says. That's not what it says at all. It, in fact, it says the direct opposite, doesn't it? It says, I will not. It does, just because there is a, 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 a command that says, I will not do this, doesn't mean that it could happen. He's saying that it will not happen. It will not. It's emphatic. Now, there are those that want to put their salvation in this limbo thing of, you know, it's all dependent on you and how you're living your life and all this kind of stuff. Actually, when you look at, the, look at salvation, that's not how you come to salvation. How in the world is that how you keep it? How in the world is that? If it's dependent on us to keep our salvation, man, I'm not going to make it, and neither are you. I'm thankful that that was done upon the cross for me, that he took my sin and that he paid the price. The gavel of justification came down when I confessed him as Lord and Savior. No longer do I have to worry about my name being blotted out of the book of life because my name, it says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, was written in it from the foundation of the world. Will God blot my name out of that book if it's in there? No, he will not. That's what he's saying. It's an incredible passage of security, folks, that if you have truly confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and I mean if you've truly done that, then you are secure. He's the one that holds you in his hand. No one can take you from his hand. And that is incredibly comforting to me. But if you haven't really come to that place, then here's the reality for you. Your name is not written in the book of life. It's not there. That's why he's not going to blot it out because it doesn't exist. Well, there's passages that reference that. Well, that's not the same book. Look into it. There's more than one book referenced in the Bible. I don't have time to go into that. But that is speaking of the book of the living, which is totally different than the book of life. Two different books. So look into that. But, but here's the deal. Well, well let, me just, let me just bring a little bit more foundation to that. Philippians chapter 1.6. He who has begun a good work in you, listen, is faithful to complete it to the day of Jesus Christ, right? He, God is going to bring that, that work that he began in you, that work of salvation that he began to do in you. He will complete it, not you. He will complete it at the day of Christ. When Jesus comes, you will shed this body, and that work will be complete. Amen, right? No longer do you have to deal with this sinful body because that work will be complete. But notice it's his work, right? We'll move on. Jesus goes on to say, not only will he clothe you and walk with you and clothe you in white, not only will he not blot your name out of the book, but number three, he will confess you before his father. This is a direct reference to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, where he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
Jesus is saying, if, if you're embarrassed of me here, I will not confess you before my Father. No, here's the thing, is he's asking you to be bold. And it might cost you something. But you have to ask yourself this question. If, if I'm unwilling to do that, is he really in me? Is he really in me? Is there that desire? And I'm not saying it's not scary, and I'm not saying it's, it, he, he, you know, well, well, God has evangelists to do that. No, no, he's calling you. He called all of us to confess him before men. He's calling you to do it. And, and, and this is, an, again, a works of, it's not a works-based thing. It's not how you're saved, but it's an evidence of your salvation. That's what he's saying. If you deny me before men, it's because that work is being manifest in your, or if you, if you confess me before men, it's because that, that work is being manifest in your life. But if you deny me, man, well, what about Peter? Well, let's talk about Peter for a second. Actually, Peter wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. Peter was still under the old covenant. You know that, right? But so really because his, his testimony is in the New Testament, there was a shift of the, a new covenant that happened upon the cross of Jesus Christ. That's when the blood covered them. Did Jesus deny, uh, did Peter deny Jesus after that? Peter was crucified upside down because he was emboldened in his face because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there's a portion of the disciples' lives that they are not spirit-filled people. That they are, maybe the Spirit is upon them just like in the Old Testament, but he's not in them. So Jesus says this. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is the exhortation to the church. That is the exhortation to you and I this morning. If you have an ear to hear, hear what he says. Now, I think this is a relevant message this morning because the church as a whole is in a state of dying. I don't know if you know that. The church in America is in a state of dying. And in fact, most of the denominations will tell you their decline is so great that they're not going to exist in like a year, t 10 years, 5, 10 years from now because their congregation's all dying. They're not reproducing. That's not a healthy church. And here's what he says. Here's what Thomas Rainier, he said, actually, 100, and this was written last year, and this was written earlier this year, I'm sorry, in January. 100 to 200 churches are closing their doors not every month, not every year, every week. 100 to 200 churches are closing their doors every week. That's to the tune of six to 10,000 churches a year. Six to 10,000 churches a year. Why? Why is that happening? Because they're not following what Jesus said in this letter in the church of Sardis. Because they are dependent, they have a reputation of something, and they're living in the past. They're living upon somebody else's Holy Spirit-filled experience. And they're using the stories from somebody else. And, and, and you know what? God wants to do a fresh work today. And so the church is dying because people aren't being Spirit-filled. They're not allowing the Holy Spirit to manifest Himself in their lives. And it's not, it's not just the leadership. It's the body in general. Listen, it, it, the leadership of most churches, most church, the average size is 50 to 60 people. You know, you have a leadership team of maybe like one or two or maybe three people. And so you have, you know, maybe one or two or three people that are spirit-filled. Maybe not spirit-filled. It could be a leadership issue too. 
But here's the thing is if the body's not spirit-filled, then the church isn't going to be able to continue to move forward. Because, and, and that's why. It's not just about this church. It's the church, folks. Because we're not trying to build anything. But boy, do you see the efforts of that in lots of different places. And I'm not saying that there isn't, there, hey, out of those 100 to 200 churches, there may, be a, there may be a few of them that the Lord says, I only had this church here for a purpose, for this purpose, and now I'm, now I'm removing. I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to do something else. And that's perfectly okay because he's God. And he can do what he wants. And this is his church. But here's the responsibility of the people and the leadership of the church to be spirit-filled people. That is the responsibility of the, uh, of the entire church in general to make sure that we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, number one, that we're saved. <laughs> number two, that we're operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. Number three, that you're utilizing your gifts of the Spirit. Listen, if you want to be alive, if you want to be vibrant, if you want to be life-breathing to people, then you need the Holy Spirit in your life. How do I know if I'm a Spirit-led Christian? How do I know that? Because, it, because I get full, full of passion and I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. No. Let me give you three things. Three things to help you identify if you're a spirit-led Christian. Number one, are you growing in the Lord? Number one, are you growing in the Lord? Like, could you honestly say today that, that, that you know Jesus better than you ever have? And I don't mean intellectually. I mean practically, like in your life. Like, his words are coming out off the page into your life and out of your feet. Like, you're living out his word in your life. Are you growing? If you're not growing, then you're dying. There is no in-between. You're either growing or you're dying. That is the reality. You can't live off of yesterday's manna. Listen, let it never be that you have these conversations over and over and over where you say, remember when? What about the present tense? Listen to what God is doing now. Are you growing? That's a good question to ask yourself. Number two, are you going in the power of the Spirit? Are you going where he leads you? Jesus already commanded it's not a, the great suggestion, the great commission. It's a commandment. Go into all the world and share the gospel. The Spirit of God will lead you to various places to do that. Let me just let you in on a secret. It's not comfortable. It's not comfortable, but he's not worried about your comfort. He's going to lead you in places that are uncomfortable for you, and they're incredibly scary for you. And in fact, you may have everybody against you. But if you know it's the Spirit of God, you better go. You better go because, you know, you are in full rebellion of God if you don't. Do you understand that? Like God isn't looking for a form of godliness that denies its power. He is looking for people. He's looking for people that will legitimately do what he asked them to do. That they'll be full of the Holy Spirit and they will go into the world. Listen, you might not go to Africa. You might not go to Timbuktu. 
But you're going to your workplace every day. You're going to the grocery store. You are going to places. You, you pull into your garage every day. Do you ever talk to your neighbors? Do you ever talk to anybody around you? Don't forget this is not about you. After you come to the cross, it's about him. And you ought to be living for him, whatever it is. Are you going where he told you to go, number three? This is the most uncomfortable one. Are you a giver? Are you a giver? What do I mean? What do you mean, giver? I don't have to give anything. Okay, if that's your thoughts, we're going to talk afterwards because <laughs> you don't understand the gospel. A spirit-led Christian is a giving Christian in three specific ways. He is giving in his time, he's giving in his talents, and he's giving in his finances. His time, talents, his finances. Let's pretty much sum up who you are as a person, right? Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Okay, that's like sacrificial living. He's not like, you know, hey, just, just get the ticket to go to heaven and you're good. You know, I'll take care of the rest. No, he said, if you want to follow me, and this is part of the problem with, with modern day Christianity, is people think that following Jesus just means getting the golden ticket to go to heaven, but they don't understand that he has work for them to do. Like, he has something to do, and, and I'm not saying, like, like, look, at the end of the day, if you confess Jesus as Lord, you're going to heaven. It's not about your works, but your works are evidence of your salvation, right? Are you a giver? Are you giving? Are you giving of your time? Are you sitting on the sidelines? Are you in the game, or are you sitting on the sidelines? Jesus, you're a starter on his team. Are you engaging, or are you not? Are you giving of your time? Are you giving of your giftings? Do you know? that the Holy Spirit has imparted something in you, not for you, but for me and for everybody else, for the body of Christ. Do you know that? He has given you some gift to give back to us. But if you hold on to it, then we're missing out. And you're missing out. Number three, finances. God doesn't need your money. That's not what it's about. It's about obedience. Is he really Lord? Is he really Lord of your life? How do I know? Look at your checkbook. Look at your checkbook. You'll know. You'll know. And God wants you to be a cheerful giver and everything like that. He doesn't want you to give begrudgingly. But I'm saying, look at your checkbook. Are you a cheerful giver? He doesn't need your money. But he does need your obedience. Are you a giver? Are you giving of your time, talents, and of your finances? Those three simple things right there, I believe, encompass the gospel. I believe somebody who is a spirit-led person will display those three things in their life. And there are more, right? But I just picked three. I think they're the three most significant because all three of these are heart issues. So the question is, are you doing that? And as I was praying, and I've been praying, and l let's just not dance around the elephant. Hey, guess what? We need to grow as a church. You know, we, we, we have been declining, you know, and, and I don't understand it. And as I've been praying to the Lord and asking the Lord, Lord, what do you want to do here? Where's the passion? Lord, what do you want to do in our body? 
Lord, did you call us here? And then, you know, are, are we just going to fizzle out? What do you want to do here? He said, Tim, why don't you read that letter that I wrote to you? And let's start there. So I read this letter to the church of Sardis. and say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, what am I doing? And I begin to pray to the Lord, like, what do you want to do in my life? You want to revive me. I want to be re revived. Lord, I want, I want to be led by your spirit. I want your spirit to do an amazing work here. And I know you called us to it. And, you know, we could, we could sit here and hem-haw around about all the reasons why this could be happening, but I'm telling you that, listen, if we just focus on one thing, and that is to be spirit-led people, spirit-filled and spirit-led people, God will take care of everything else. And it doesn't even matter what happens because it's about obedience and it's about being faithful to what he's calling you to. So he starts with me. And these three things are the things that the Lord's commit, having me commit to. And I am, as your pastor, asking you to commit to. This will be the motto of our church moving into 2019 and forever until the Holy Spirit tells us not to, to change it. Because our mission is to go to, to know Christ and to make him known. That's pretty, pretty basic, pretty biblical, you know, statement. But what's our philosophy? Our philosophy is spirit-led people, not methods-driven people, but spirit-led people. Spirit-led people are growing. Spirit-led people are going. And spirit-led people are giving. Those three things. That's what God, I'm committing before you all today. This is my motto, and I'm asking you to commit with me on that. And that you would ask the Lord to do the same in your heart. That you would say, Lord, here I am. I wanted you to do an amazing work in my heart. So do it. And there's three words that the Lord has given me. And they are this. Go for it. Go for it. Like, stop holding back. Don't, don't, don't think for a moment that, you know, this thing's going to go on and on and on and on. One day Jesus is going to pop through the sky and this is going to be over. Right? So he's telling you today, go for it. He's telling me today, go for it. Will you go for it? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today, for this opportunity to hear from Sardis, for the, the, the words that you would speak to a dying church, Lord. Father, we thank you for the words that are held within this letter because they are life. We ask you even now, Lord, to produce life in our hearts. God, we want to come back to that place of a heart of worship where everything we do is a result of just loving you, Lord. We ask you in Jesus' name right now to produce a heart that would love you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind and love others as ourselves. And so we pray as we close today, Lord, that you would just move in our midst and you would call each one of us, Lord, to that place of personal uh, commitment to you. And uh, as we corporately gather here, that we would, we would hear the vision that was cast, Lord, and that you would do a work in our midst. So I pray, Lord, for anyone here that is in a genuine relationship with you, that you would call them even now to confess you as Lord and Savior. This is not plain church, but you want to do an eternal work
Maybe you're listening on the radio. Maybe you're here in the sanctuary or listening to our podcast or whatever, and the Lord's pricking your heart. You need to confess him as Lord, repent, and, and make him the Savior of your life. You can do that by simply praying this prayer. Father, I come in Jesus' name. I want to receive the forgiveness that Jesus died to give. I'm confessing my sin to you, believing in my heart that he died and rose again from the dead for me. And I want to be spirit-filled right now. I want life. I don't want death. Will you come now and make me a Christian and fill me with your spirit and help me to fulfill the cause that you have on my life? And so we just pray, Lord, for anyone else here this morning and wherever they're at, whatever's going on in their hearts, that you move by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.